morning. Thanks for allowing me in your house of worship to bring a message from God's Word to you today. Um, Now, I'm not entirely sure where the origin of the phrase, jump the gun, came from. I imagine it has something to do with, like, horse racing or foot racing or something like that, people jumping before the gun is fired. Um, Whatever the case, uh, today we're going to jump the gun a little bit. I always get accused of uh, jumping the gun uh, at... Uh, right before Christmas time, I always, in my English 12 class, we start reading a Christmas carol before Thanksgiving. Um, so uh, you can accuse me of, of jumping the gun a little bit later on if you want. Uh, but we're going to kind of jump the gun on Lent a little bit, uh, just as I'm going to be preaching here quite a few times over the next month, month and a half, helping Pastor Tim out. Um, I figured it would be uh, best if I just kind of had my own little side series and wasn't trying to like uh, piggyback onto something that he was doing or, or if there are other guest preachers that are here in the meantime. Um, so we're going to be, and plus most of the time that I'm here is going to be Lent anyway, so we're just jumping the gun a little bit here. Um, so we're going to be in a, like a, a message series uh, about things that Jesus' enemies said, and yet the things that they say actually turn out to be timeless truths that we can apply to ourselves today. And we're going to be looking at one of those from the mouth of a man named Caiaphas. You read about this in the gospel lesson earlier. Now, before we dive into that, does anyone know who this is? Okay, Marie Kondo, uh, she is like a a lifestyle organizational guru. Uh, A couple of years ago, she had a show on Netflix called Tidying Up, in which she helped people like get rid of all the, the, the useless, unneeded clutter in their lives, right? And the idea is that by, uh, by eliminating the stress of all of that, that excess or the, the disorganization that excess causes, that your life will actually be a lot happier as a result. Basically, she lives by the motto, life is better with all the clutter, without all the clutter. Um, but Marie Kondo is not really the only person who does this. This is actually cutting this idea of cutting things out of life in order to improve life is something that's fairly popular nowadays. It's, I would even say it's something of a fad, one that takes a whole lot of forms, right? Uh, for example, um, some people might say that if you cut out gluten or refined sugar, that you are going to be healthier and therefore you will be happier as a result, right? Others might say that if you um, cut out vaccines or all of those old emails in your inbox, that this is what is going to give your life a boost of some kind, right? Or maybe if you cut out the, the square footage in your, in your home, right? If you, if you go tiny and live in a tiny house, that that's going to simplify everything for you and your life is going to be improved as a result, right? Whatever the case, though, y- y- you cut something out, whatever it is that's cluttering or poisoning your life, and you're going to be better off for it. Have you ever really thought, though, um, as many people do, that your life might be better without Jesus in it? Like, that Jesus just kind of gets in the way sometimes? And that, and that if only you could cut him out, that you would have a whole lot more time, maybe on Sunday mornings, to uh, sit and sip a cup of coffee and read the newspaper or go fishing or go hunting guilt-free? That maybe if you were able to cut out his voice for a little while, you'd be able to enjoy some of those things that that your friends enjoy. But you've got that nagging voice of Jesus right there, and you know that he doesn't want you to be engaged in that, right? Maybe without all the the Bible study and catechism class and 
church meetings and things like that during the week, you'd have a whole lot more free time for this, that, or the other thing, right? Even if it's just sitting and watching Netflix, tidying up <laughs> with Marie Kondo on Netflix in the evening and relaxing a little bit more, right? Sometimes it just kind of feels like, like Jesus gets in the way and that if Jesus were out of the picture, then we would be free to just kind of swim along the stream of our society. Um, we could just kind of agree with whatever our culture decides is right or wrong. You'd never have to be that odd person out anymore, You wouldn't have to worry about holding fast and defending the things of Jesus. It would be so much easier sometimes if we could just kind of tune him out, shut him out, right? Even if it's just for a little while so that we can enjoy this, that, or the other thing. Well, this morning, as we look at, we're going to go through those verses of the gospel message again. Um, As we look at one of these timeless truths from the mouth, from, from, from one of Jesus' enemies. Um, and as we do that, we are going to hear about some people who thought that life would be a whole lot better without Jesus in it. In fact, they were so certain that that was true that they were willing to do whatever it took to make that happen, right? And so they plotted to eliminate him once and for all. As they did, though, one of them said something that was incredibly true. Right? And uh, something that would eventually pave the way to Jesus' cross. So, we're going to be reading this morning, starting at John 11.45. We'll just kind of walk through the verses a little bit more slowly now. <clears throat> so, therefore, and anytime you see a therefore, sorry, I'm not going to go through it like word by word all the time, but anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you probably want to know what just happened because it has some kind of ramification or effect on what you're reading now. So what happened right before this? Very famous account, very famous miracle. Jesus raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Now this was not the first miracle in which Jesus raised somebody to life. Um, It happened at least two times before this. Um, The difference though was that those resurrections had happened in kind of the backwater province of Galilee far to the north. This one took place in Bethany. And if you know anything about your uh, geography of Israel, Bethany was right on the doorstep of Jerusalem, right next to the center of Israel's temple and religious life. And so this gained a whole lot of attention and is going to set in motion a, a chain of events that's going to lead to the cross. So therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Okay, now if you knew somebody who could raise the dead back to life, you'd probably want to be their best friend, right? You'd want to stay on their good side just in case you or somebody that you knew kicked the bucket. What we're going to find though is that this was not the case for everybody. Some people felt dead opposite about Jesus. Next verse. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, we don't know if their intentions were good or bad here. Maybe they were tattling on Jesus. Maybe they were trying to inform the Pharisees, teachers of the law, that this had happened so that they could finally get on board with the whole Jesus thing. We don't exactly know. Um, At any rate, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the official Jewish ruling body. They were the ones responsible for making uh, all decisions, both social and spiritual, for the the nation of Israel. Um, I guess you could think of them as like the first century Israelite equivalent to the the House of Representatives or something like that. Um, So they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many 
signs. Now, this is interesting for them to acknowledge that Jesus was performing signs. It's a little different than just calling these things miracles, okay? A miracle would simply imply that something unnaturally amazing happened, okay? But they use a different word. They use the word signs. And that word signs indicates that these miracles Jesus performed were actually pointing out the authority that was given to him by God. And it's very interesting that that word comes out of their lips because on the one hand, they're acknowledging that there is some kind of divine stamp of approval on Jesus. And yet on the other, they just cannot outright admit that. Because if they did, if they acknowledge Jesus' divine authority, it means giving up something that they loved. They go on and say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And now we start getting down to the real motives here. They're scared. See, the Romans, yes, were technically in charge, but they more or less were willing to let the Jewish people kind of rule themselves. Like as long as they kept quiet, as long as they paid their taxes, as long as they didn't cause any trouble, they were allowed to generally set the laws. They were allowed to um, worship how they wanted. They were given religious license, religious freedom. But now we have this Jesus guy who is amassing, starting to amass quite a following. This Jesus who claimed that he was both God and a king. Something, by the way, that the Roman emperor claimed for himself. And so what's the fear here? They're worried that if Jesus is allowed to go on unchecked, that he is going to continue to grow in popularity until the Romans see this as a problem, and then they will come in and either destroy them or just take much tighter control. What are they afraid of? These were the most powerful men among all of the Jews. But if this whole Jesus thing keeps rolling, it means an end to that one way or another. If not to Jesus himself, that they'll lose their authority, then to Rome. They needed Jesus out of the way because they didn't want to give up the control that they had. They didn't want to give up their power, their authority, that need for their power consumed them. And they were willing to go to any lengths to keep it. And then we come to kind of the key verse here. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. We need to get rid of Jesus, he says. And he says it straightforward. We need to get rid of this guy. We need to cut him out of the picture. Then we, can, then we won't have to worry about the Romans coming to bother us. Then we'll be able to stay in control. Then we'll be able to keep our power. Then we'll be able to keep our authority. It's ironic, really. Because when somebody needs something so badly that they will do anything to have it, 
would we really say that they are free? That they're making free decisions, free choices? All That's kind of the way our world views it, right? I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I don't want anybody, um, I don't want anybody, even Jesus, even God, telling me that I can or can't do this, that, or the other thing, right? I'm a free person. But when we need something so badly that we are willing to go to any lengths to get it, are you really free? Would we say that the drug addict is free? Making a free choice here. Now, we would say that person is really enslaved by that, right? Or somebody, the, the, the corrupt Wall Street trader maybe, would we say that they are acting um, completely of their own accord, that they're in control of their desire for more and more and more? Or would we say that they are a slave to their greed? Well, what about these Pharisees and chief priests? Did they wield power? Or were they slaves to it? You know, so often Satan tempts us to think that if we can just get rid of Jesus like the Pharisees and priests, or even if we can just shut out his voice for a while, that then we'll be free. Then we'll be free to do what we want. We'll have all the control to make all our own decisions for our own lives. We'll be able to build our own little kingdom and be in control ruling over it. But the reality without Jesus isn't freer, ever. It doesn't leave you more in charge. It enslaves you. Like dumb animals, we are then controlled really by nothing more than our desires and appetites. These things that demand, they constantly be quenched and satisfied. We are in control. We are controlled. And so if you're writing down notes in your uh, service folder, here's kind of your first big main point for the morning. Life without Jesus is enslavement. And yet the story is, is actually worse than simply being ruled by bad habits and, and self-destructive tendencies. Um, if that were the sum total of our problems, then we could then we could do what's necessary to kind of figure those problems out, right? If you work hard enough, you can break the bad habits. All you have to do is become more self-controlled and, and you'd be able to put an end to the addiction or whatever problem it is. Um, the thing, though, uh, the thing is that all of these enslaving passions and desires, uh, whether for power or money or sex or whatever it might be, these things are all actually servants themselves, they're servants who serve their own master, Satan. And once we cut Jesus out, even for a moment, uh, he wraps those chains of guilt and sin around us, and he enslaves us. And he enslaves us to something that's far worse than addiction. He enslaves us to an eternity of hell, an eternity shut out from the presence of God, an eternity of essentially getting exactly what we wanted, when we walked away from God towards sin in the first place. And so, yeah, you might be able to break the chains of bad habits and addictions, but you are powerless to break the claim that sin and Satan and hell have over you. Now, so far this morning, it's been a lot of bad news, right? Um, and yet, the message of the Bible 
is not primarily one of bad news, right? The message of the Bible is primarily one of good news, okay? And so let me share some good news with you this morning. Your enslavement is exactly the reason God sent Jesus to break those chains that hold you captive and in bondage. You know, God didn't look at you and me living these these self-centered, selfish, hurtful, godless lives. He he didn't look at us and, and decide to just like cut out the clutter that he had created. Right? He didn't snap his fingers like Thanos in those Marvel movies and just get rid of all of these people poisoning his world and his creation. Instead, what did he do? He sent his son to save you from that enslavement. You see, God actually agrees with what Caiaphas technically said in that gospel lesson. God says it is better. It is better for one to die than for all my people to perish. And so I am going to send my one and only son, Jesus, so that the people I created, yes, even people who love sin more than me, so that they might be released from their captivity, so that the power of sin and death and hell and Satan would be broken forever. In less than two months now, the, I think it's less than two months, um, the, the season of Lent is going to come to an end with a Christian holiday called Good Friday. And on Good Friday, Jesus does what we failed to do. Right? The, the message of Jesus is not, as so many believe, is not one of uh, showing us how, that, how we can get free, right? Jesus didn't come to show you how you can break Satan's stranglehold over you. He didn't come so that he can be this example who teaches us how to get free. Right? Jesus came to do it himself, right? He came to shatter Satan's power. He came to liberate you from sin and from hell. And on Good Friday, Jesus, te- Jesus trades his own life for the very people who push him away. For the very people who so often treat him like he's clutter in their lives, who think that his teachings and his commands are somehow not good for us at times. For you, for me, Jesus suffers. For you, for me, Jesus endures the humiliation of both his own countrymen and foreigners. For you, he is whipped and beaten within inches of his life. For you, he carries that cross up the high hill. For you, he screams as nails like railroad ties are driven through his hands and his feet. For you, for me, he's forsaken by his Father in heaven. For you, he suffers every imaginable suffering, physical, emotional, spiritual, why? So that we would be free. And that's when we come to these words from John 19. Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
Okay? And, and, and when he says that, it's not just his suffering which is finished. It's not just his suffering which comes to an end. No, those words of Jesus mean that your slavery is finished. That your bondage to sin is finished. That the debt you owed of hell itself is wiped away completely. Jesus has done everything necessary to buy you back from your enslavement. He hasn't left any of that price now for you to pay. Jesus took care of it all as he suffered and died to set you free from that bondage. So here's that second main point today. The death of Jesus equals freedom. Right? Satan has no claim over you any longer who believe in Jesus. Hell no longer has a dungeon with your name on the mailbox outside of it or anything like that. Jesus has broken all of those chains that held you captive. The God-man himself suffered and died for your forever freedom. Why would you ever, why would you ever want to do life without him? Without someone who loves you and is that dedicated to your true and lasting happiness, right? Why would we ever want to cut him out even for a moment? You know, sin and Satan, they will never, ever love you. They will never, ever care for you. They just want to have you. But God loves you so much and cares for you so much that he literally went to the grave for you so that you could have freedom, real freedom, in the name and through the blood of Jesus. Amen.